Morning, Victory family and friends. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we rejoice, and we are so glad in it. Uh, shout out to our Victory worship team, uh, particularly Chantel and Crystal on that song that they continue to bless us with, and, and the entire team and their recordings that they allow us to be ministered to um, during this season uh, of this COVID pandemic. My name is Paul. I'm incredibly privileged and, and honored to serve as pastor of Victory Church of Charlottesville, where we exist to see people reconcile to God and to each other. Uh, and I'm thrilled today that you've chosen to join us. Typically, I would say for the next 29 minutes, but I'm saying probably 75 to 90 minutes today because I am being joined by some of our amazing uh, people that I get to call church family. Um, this past summer, we um, we read a book entitled The Color of Compromise. Um, it's written by Jamar Tisby, a historian. And so I've asked some of the group leaders uh, from that summer experience and some more of our church family to join us uh, for a debrief of that time that we thought could be useful, not just for us as we converse about it and reflect on it, but perhaps for you who are considering where we are, uh, present day happenings, and also reflecting back on where we've come from and certainly where we want to go. And so as a brief intro, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. And as you turn there, I just want to pray for our time today. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Permeate every single aspect with your Holy Spirit of this dialogue today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 reads, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. When God is recognized, people are reconciled. Reconciliation, uh, as we've talked about on a number of occasions here at Victory, it implies that there's a separation between, uh, between two parties. There's a a chasm, if you will. It assumes there's been a breakdown somewhere in a relationship. There's incompatibility. There's alienation. Um, and with reconciliation comes a change from this place of enmity and fragmentation to one of fellowship. Reconciliation uh, is the end of the estrangement that previously existed. And you and I, we, as according to the Bible, says that uh, the Bible says we were dead in our transgressions and in our sins. Our iniquity separated us from a holy God, and our being reconciled to God is the objective work of God through Christ alone in his death on the cross. He then gives us the privilege, though, as it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, of stewarding that message of reconciliation here on the earth. So that means you and I, those who call Jesus Lord, we get to announce with how we live the nature and the condition of God's plan for reconciliation to him primarily and out and from that with each other. The people at Corinth uh, to whom Apostle Paul was writing this letter, we know were uh, they had some issues. So they were not unlike us. There were about 400,000 folks in that city, uh, Jews, Greeks, a mixed multitude of people happened to be a wealthy city, and it also happened to be rather rampant and have a reputation for immorality and, and rampant paganism. And it was in the middle of that city, though, that the Apostle Paul decided to establish a church on his second missionary journey, because where God is recognized, people are reconciled. And so the tension in this text, the tension in our lives, if you will, is that it can be hard, though, to see God sometimes. It's hard to see through the chaos of this world. 
doesn't make God any less real. It just makes it a bit harder to find him. And so for all of us who call Jesus Lord, we don't want to make it harder for folks to find Jesus. And yet the truth is the American church has been complicit in making it difficult to find God because one of the reasons is it's complicity in racism, as the book that we read this past summer talks about. And because of that complicity in racism, maybe some of you watching today have found it difficult to, to get to God, to see God, to have any belief in God, that there is a God still there, and yet he's still there, and he's still a God of reconciliation. Jesus' death on the cross was the justice required for reconciliation to take place. And so now you and I get to participate with Jesus in seeing justice here on the earth. Yes, God cares about justice. And for there to be reconciliation, there has to be an understanding of the injustices and a pursuit of justice. And in so doing, may God be recognized so that people can be reconciled. And so in an effort to bear God's image better here in the earth, we read this book together by historian Jamar Tisby, as I referenced, to learn just a bit more about the church, church's complicity in racism so that we can repent, which means to turn away from, we can lament and move forward with our eyes open about the realities of our history and our present. So I've asked a group of folks to join me this morning and they are here, Olivia, Joseph, Cara, Michelle, Mark, Stefan. They're here to share a bit of their experiences this summer and I wanna kick it to Olivia to start off that conversation for us today. Thank you all for being here. Hi, good morning. My name is Olivia. Um, I led a group of about six women um, on Thursday mornings with this group. And I came um, to the group knowing that I just really needed practice having difficult conversations. Um, I did not grow up in a diverse environment. It really wasn't until college and as an adult that I've developed relationships with people that don't look like me. And I have benefited very much from that. Um, but I just knew and I was excited to to read this book and kind of start my journey, um, really starting with the knowledge base, the acknowledgement, um, the backstory, the history. Um, I think the more that I learned the hearts of people that live a completely different life than me, it um, it allows me to to understand more and to know how to respond and share my heart um, with them at the same time. So I was feeling really stuck kind of right before this study, um, just looking at the news and really not knowing how to um, share in the pain that, you know, that my other brothers and sisters are experiencing because I didn't want it to feel like I understood, you know, I don't know what that is like um, to live that. Um, so I was just excited for this study to, to dig in, to know, um, how to have difficult conversations and just get practice with talking about race. Um, so not all of the information in the book was new to me, um, but very much so specifically about the church's role, um, in how our, you know, our current landscape was formed, um, based on all those beginnings and, I think one big part that stood out to me was just the level of intention that went into the way things were established. And I think a big takeaway for me with this book was just how much intention we're going to have to put into tearing those walls down that were intentionally put up. Um, so that's a big um, takeaway for me. I think together as a group, we kind of had a collective heartbreak every Thursday morning. Um, and it was just really important to learn 
um, how to lament and the process of lamenting and what can lamenting lead to, um, that it is a very important first step to take. And um, I think we learned, you know, what godly grief was and that lament leads to connection with God as a redeemer. Um, so, you know, the more that you learn to love the hearts of your, you know, brothers and sisters that have experienced this, um, it kind of, it leads to a deeper disappointment as well. And it really is, um, it was a struggle sometimes just to know, um, you know, how to even move forward or how to get past that initial, just, it's just hard sometimes to articulate that, um, but I learned too from the book of, of how much ugliness there is and how much we had tried to hide it. Um, and that was one of um, the author's main points in the beginning was how it's the, you know, it's the exposure of this deep sin um, of the injustice that has to kind of be brought up. And, you know, true peace isn't, you know, from the absence of conflict, but it's when these things are exposed and it's when these things are stood up or stirred up that we can um, allow that true peace to settle. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. I'm so glad for this church to have given us the space and opportunity to dig through it and to just start, um, somewhere. Obviously we have lots, um, left to do. And I think one of the, another point that I left the group with was just there's a lot of sacrifices that are required um, in order for the transformation to occur. So we really have to be willing to sacrifice our own comfort, our own um, level of, you know, even just feeling safe in our own little bubble that you have to be able to look the injustice in the face and talk about it. And um, I do want to just quickly wrap up with Lamentations chapter three verse 40, which is let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. And that is all my, my rambling has. So I'll turn it over to Joseph. Thank you for that, um, Olivia. Um, and again, for the opportunity to share here today, uh, Pastor Paul. Um, I think to the first point that uh, Olivia raised in terms of uh, how do we come to the, the reading. Um, I oftentimes, in reflecting on that question, think about the uh, experiences of uh, my wife and I, Erica, uh, that we were oftentimes um, in the earlier parts of our marriage and um, in spaces where uh, the churches that were um, theologically sound in terms of the doctrine and their teaching uh, tended to be predominantly white spaces. And so we tended to find ourselves in those spaces because of the theological richness um, and just, um, I, I, I guess, the uh, devotion to the, to the word of God. Uh, and it was, it was in those white churches that, again, uh, I think a lot of the things that uh, we read in the reading uh, just really it reinforced some of our own experiences in those spaces where um, those churches, uh, predominantly white, um, would be, as James Cone would actually say, uh, churches that oftentimes they preach love, uh, but ignore justice, and then kind of develop a theology that justify that, right? And so that was kind of our experience. And so I, I think one of the main takeaways for me personally from the book was um, just kind of validating those experiences, right? That, um, that this is an issue, this notion of whiteness and white supremacy, and even Western theology to a certain degree um, has infiltrated the church uh, and the church has been very much complicit and still is in a lot of ways 
with some of the racial um, injustices that uh, currently impact so many um, so many people across across the world, right? Not just within the United States. Um, in terms of the the, the group, I really enjoyed uh, my group. We had a, a relatively multi-racial uh, group. Um, and, and I think when I think about what, what were some of the particular, the beautiful things about the group or, or in terms of that experience. So as a facilitator, uh, one of the things that I noticed um, throughout our group, and I think we met for five or six sessions that was that there was actually this necessary uncomfortableness that took place when having these conversations. I would assume that again, that's necessary across uh, racial lines, across genders, and I would even assume within our group political affiliations. Um, another thing that I really enjoyed uh, witnessing or getting the, the chance to be a part of was kind of this necessary moments of conflict that took place throughout multiple, um, I think, exchanges that we had uh, within our group, but as well as offline and through emails, uh, as well as um, there was also like this necessary challenge to give up common ground, to to give up some of our ideas and, and to to push back on others' positions and worldviews. And for me, this is, it signified that, oh, you know what, the group is working as it should be. So as a facilitator, I felt like each week I entered the group and I had less and less of a responsibility because uh, members brought in their own questions and they grappled and they challenged each other. And again, it was me really just sitting back and just trying to facilitate it. But again, the group took on a life, life of its own. And so um, as a facilitator, that's really always the goal that I actually have. Uh, when I think about the challenges as I, as I kind of close, um, I, I think one of the challenges, at, at least for me, um, was really this realization that, you know what, while we worship together and may even serve on the same ministries, that we can still be miles apart in terms of uh, our own racial understandings of whiteness or white supremacy uh, and its impact, uh, our lived experiences, as well as even our thoughts about what should the Christian response be to racial injustice, right? Um, should we endure civil disobedience? Um, what does this mean in terms of uh, political implications? And so again, that while we're a part of, you know, if I just bring it home to, to Victory Church, a multiracial church, the fact that it is a multiracial church in and of itself is not necessarily a sign that rec racial reconciliation is actually taking place. And, and so again, I think that's a, on one hand, it's a very sobering thought because there's much work to, to be done. Then on the other hand, um, I just don't, it's encouraging because I'm not sure there's another space that actually exists where people volunteer who can come from such different worldviews and backgrounds and, and still worship the God together. And so again, a, a lot of work to be done. Um, but again, one of the things I think at least I took away, maybe some other group members uh, who can speak for themselves is that again, um, evidence of racial reconciliation isn't necessarily the presence of you know, multiracial churches, right? And so again, there's still work to be done even in those spaces. So I'm gonna stop there and uh, pass, pass that torch on to someone else. Um, hi, my name is Kara. Um, I led a um, color of compromise group this summer. And um, I would say I came to the group um, wanting to um, explore and also help other people explore um, maybe some, some historical truths that were unknown. Um, our group was predominantly white. And um, I think because of that, we had a lot of people who came wanting to learn and wanting to listen, um, which I think was, um, you know, sort of a good posture of humility. Um, and I think that there was a lot of um, desire to to be able to lament with um, a lot of things that were new to, to some of the people in our group. Um, you know, there were some, um, some 
graphic um, chapters. And I think that there are some people who really, um, you know, took away from that the just the level of um, a level of racism that they didn't really recognize existed or didn't know existed specifically in the church. And so I think that that was a, um, you know, a good um, awareness and wake up call. Um, and, and I did really appreciate um, the, the level of um, lament and humility that people wanted to, to bring to that. Um, I think one of the takeaways that I, um, you know, really wanted to, to have, and I wanted people in our group to have, which um, I'm not sure exactly how that played out for them. But for me, the recognition of what it looks like to, um, to really press into reconciliation and to press into what is um, God's heart for mercy and justice and not just mine or my, um, my previous white churches understanding of what that meant. And so I think, um, you know, learning what it means to to truly be an ally to people like Joseph was talking about um, in a place where you come from different backgrounds, different experiences. And, um, and I think, you know, as I've talked about um, life with Chris and we've talked about my husband, Chris, um, about difficult situations, what does it look like to suffer with people and um, to, to sit with them and not feel the need to um, try and change their mind or their, their experience, um, but to actually listen, um, and to sit in hard places with people who haven't experienced, who you haven't experienced the same thing as them. Um, so I think, um, walking away some of what, um, you know, our experience as from me as a white woman, um, sitting with and knowing that I have, um, brothers and sisters that are, experiencing a, a life that is different than mine, um, that their lived experience has not um, been as privileged in, in a lot of ways. And so how, how I um, uh, can sit and view their experience and not feel the need to negate it or cancel it. Um, I think that is really important as we walk alongside, you know, a lot of people and a lot of people suffering in a lot of different ways. Um, and so I think um, some of that just means a, a readiness to do away with the need to judge um, what other people have deemed a, an experience for themselves. So um, I think there's that. I think a scripture that has continued to um, play a part in, in where I see all of this is Proverbs 2, um, 6 through 9. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteous and justice, righteousness and justice and equity for every good path. Um, and so I think just really wanting to um, move towards people um, with truth and and knowing that that means that God's justice matters more than um, what my um, desire to please people or to be complicit is. Um, I think it matters that we are willing to stand up for things um, when it pushes us against the people who we love, um, because there are a lot of really hard conversations to be had with people who believe strongly and firmly um, in things that I don't agree with. And so how do we um, 
both move towards them in love without, you know, hating them, um, but also shake off that, that which is not good um, and that which God has called us to shake off. So um, I think all that to say it's, it is a, it is a walk of humility to be able to say that you want to, um, to learn more and know that you don't know everything about um, a subject. Um, I like to read and tend to have as much knowledge as I can on a subject before I teach it as a fifth grade teacher. That's, you know, was, was important. Um, but to re to realize that there's no way I can know all the things I cannot know all the experiences that people have had and, um, and I can't speak for them. Um, and so wanting to, to know how to, um, to speak what God's heart and mind is on injustice. Um, so pass it along to the next person. Hi, this is Michelle. Um, so um, I decided to actually start the group because I wanted to educate myself a little bit more on what racism means and um, how the church has um, been a uh, part of that. So um, uh, decided to post a Facebook and got a response and um, have the Lord has completely led uh, who and um, who to the group, who came to the group and, and, um, and what we talked about. And so um, our group is extremely small, but it was so good. Um, we had two people from Victory Church and two not from Victory Church um, and uh, three white women and one woman of color. And so it was a um, phenomenal conversation to be able to have a conversation um, about race during this time was incredible. I think I, some of the same things that came um, that Kira said uh, were very similar to our group. Um, it was, uh, for one, uh, Jamar Tisby's book was a book that demanded a response, and it does demand a response. Um, we, um, uh, as a church, has been complicit, and so in what ways have they complicit was very uh, educational, it was very eye-opening, um, and uh, it, it, it definitely demands a response. And one of the responses that we felt as a group was lament, and that um, I've heard that said a few times here, and lament is a very strong um, sadness, uh, feeling of um, remorse, and even to the point of repentance. And so I felt like it um, demands that even that kind of a response of repentance. So what does that even mean? That means that we move forward in um, asking for forgiveness and for um, uh, making a place of, uh, of change because of that. Um, we also, uh, in, as part of our group, learned about suffering a little bit more, just sitting with the suffering, uh, like Kira said as well, um, uh, what that looks like. And, and even the, the point of, um, we don't have to completely uh, suffer now, we, we can actually experience great joy and pleasure and change now and don't have to wait until heaven in order to experience the great reward. We, there is reward now if we make some changes now. Um, that the uh, church is not infallible, that it has um, participated in that um, suffering and oppression, and that that also um, can change now if people speak up 
And so that's um, something that I feel like is uh, a lesson learned and a, and a, and a, uh, a place that, um, that needs to happen is that we need uh, to speak up and say something and do something. And that's another reason why I decided to actually lead the group is I felt like this is a time that we can speak up and speak out. And I, a verse that um, comes to mind here is um, uh, Proverbs 31, 8, 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Um, so, also, Micah 6, 8, um, of course, he has shown me what is required, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with, with our God, and, and in all that, to um, walk humbly, to learn, to educate ourselves, to, um, to be available to what God has called us to in this time, whatever that might be. Well, I will certainly pick it up from there, Michelle. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Mark Menifee. I had the opportunity of uh, not only being a leader in one of the groups, I actually participated in, in Kara's group um, for a great experience to kind of see different dynamics of that because I led a predominantly um, black group and uh, you know I was part of her group, which was predominantly white. So it was some pretty unique experiences shared uh, between the two groups. But First and foremost, what really led me to this book, and thank God for Pastor Paul here, um, just for, for allowing us as a, as a church to um, collectively read and explore um, Jamar Tisby's book, uh, Color of Compromise. I think, you know, I'm 35 years old. It's the first time I've ever really talked about um, racism in this context in any church. And I've, I've you know, I've, I've called myself, I, I think I was raised in a church for the most part. And this is the first time. It just says a lot um, about where I think, you know, churches need to go. Uh, and I, that's important. Um, and why I felt led to this book was, you know, just thinking of my upbringing. Um, coming from Chicago, uh, my mother um, took us out of the inner city, uh, to inner south side of Chicago, and actually moved us to the suburbs when we were fairly young. And, you know, you think, why? Well, you know, why, why would mom do that? And, and her reasoning was really to get us out of, the, out of an environment which was, which was fairly um, not conduct, conducive for us to be um, achieve a higher level of education for us to have an experience where we weren't afraid of walking down the street um, for, for fear of being shot. Um, and so those conditions, you think about that and you think, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. And there's still uh, conditions that we see today on the TV and everything, but there's a why to that. There's a context to that in, in terms of the formation and why um, those conditions were the way they were. And I think when you, when you look at this book, it, it did a really good job of explaining some of the impacts that racism had um, and that you can see lingering to this day. One of the things that was really pretty much promoted in the book was just the idea that um, racism evolves. Um, it necessarily hasn't been eliminated. And so I think about my mother um, taking us from the inner city of Chicago out to white suburbia um, and really, you know, the, the, the logic behind that was to have, a, have us have the opportunity that many Many, many people from the community we came from didn't have. Um, so that was very um, crucial in, in just my upbringing and how my mind was shaped early in life. Um, and I think it, you know, it lingered to this day uh, to want to explore more, uh, want to seek the truth more and understand why 
things the way they are. And I think this book was was one of the things that it really did a good job of, of, of at least creating a proper context for racism and the impact it had as a result of complicity <laughs> to the, that we that we see which at least have seen throughout the uh, throughout the years here. Um, so, like I said, I led I led a group of eight, um, you know, charged group uh, folks who you know predominantly black. Um, you know, the biggest, I will say the biggest takeaway I've got from that experience and just having these conversations. And I think Joseph said it earlier about validating um, my experience or our experiences as black people um, was something that was so uh, refreshing. And it was almost like a, a relief to some extent, you know, where we had an opportunity to have a space to come and talk about, you know, the stress we deal with on a day to day basis at our jobs in certain settings where um, you know, we don't have an opportunity to truly be ourselves and, and really um, walk into, or at least talk about the things that we deal with on, a, on those day-to-day on those -day basis. And I think our group particularly had a, a space where we could do that freely, um, explore some of the forms of racism that we experience in our lives. And that really allowed us to just in, indulge in a, in, a, in a kind of communal, but free in way um, where we just had an opportunity to learn about each other, um, be there for one another, pray for one another, which was very powerful, um, very powerful. So I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to you know where this goes. Um, I think this is the first step of a, of of many that we'll kind of dive into later. Um, but I'll end it on that, and we'll talk more about that. And I'll pass it to Mr. Stefan. Hi, everybody. How you doing? It's good to uh, see the faces on um, the Zoom meeting and as well as you all out there in the ether listening to this really important discussion that we are having. Uh, my name is Stefan Wheelock and uh, I was part of the uh, one of the facilitators rather for the Color of Compromise group uh, this summer. And I think what I would say first off is that, you know, I came to the book uh, color of compromise with some sense, some um, um, uh, knowledge of the field, given my own um, interests in uh, Black religious history. Uh, but when I started reading the book and then I read it through, it just, the book really just blew my mind. Um, and I think the reason why it blew my mind was first and foremost, because it's some of what we encounter by way of the best in the prophetic uh, black prophetic religious tradition. And what do I mean by prophecy here? That the book wasn't simply telling us something that you know, prophecy isn't about fortune telling as much as it is about truth telling. And I think that the book itself was engaged in a substantial work of truth telling. And I think that that's what we are really hearing from the facilitators today about the book. The book was uncomfortable um, for our group we had some really, I think, serious heavyweights and thinkers who were teaching me. I became their student rather than my being their instructor. And for them, but for that, I'm really grateful to them. Uh, but the thing that I think that we all as a group struggled with was really trying to understand in a meaningful way what it meant to talk about what Christ expects of us as a church and the kind of church we actually live in, right? So we live in a church really informed by real history and the tragedy of that history. And what does that mean when that tragic history runs up against God's purposes and plans for our lives? 
as a united kingdom under God. And I think that one of the things that I came from with the group is that we all felt as if we were walking with Professor Tisby toward an enlightenment. It was a tragic form of enlightenment. It hurt, it was painful. Um, it made us challenge ourselves. My group was mostly composed of, of men. Um, and I think I had two women of color in the, in the, in the group, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, which made for an interesting dynamic. But we were, we were all simply trying to figure out, well, what do we do with this knowledge now that we have it, all right? What does it mean to really talk in meaningful ways about a church that has had all of this kind of sordid history? And one of the things that we've had to soberly reckon with, and I'll end on this note, is that we're dealing with a church that has built itself and institutionalized itself in a history, not just of racism, but the word that I would prefer to use is racial terror in its everyday sense and in its uh, largest sense. Uh, much of the book, as, as Kara has pointed out, was hard to read. But I think that what the group successfully did was that we said we were going to confront it bravely and that we were going to try to learn from it and that we were going to try to grow with it in our understanding of communities, other communities that aren't like us and don't share our opinions. I think that the wonderful piece to this book is that the book is attempting to grow our sense of empathy. Whether you are uh, uh, a person who has had the kind of experience that Tisby is talking about, or a person who isn't familiar with the experience, that it is that the book's ultimate aim was toward reconciling us with one another. And that is a tough road to walk down. That that is, that, that takes effort. And then that means also soberly um, reckoning with our history. And I'm just thankful to the group and I look forward to uh, where Color of Compromise will take this church next, where uh, the vision that was uh, begun by Pastor Harris will grow and flower so that the, that the church internally and its impact on the community will begin to really flourish across racial lines and across perspectives. And to that, I will turn and, uh, to Pastor Harris closing comments. Well, I think if there's anything illuminated uh, by your presence here is, is it's that we need each other. I think of 1 Corinthians 12, Apostle Paul talks about the parts of the body. Uh, Ephesians 4 certainly talks about us being supporting ligaments for one another, growing and building each other up in love. And as I heard you all share, it, it, it became refreshingly clear as it already has been um, the, the unique needs that we have for each other in these spaces. And something that I heard kind of as a thread throughout is, is the, which by the way, I don't think it can be overstated, the richness of your sharing and certainly the deeper richness even of your experiencing and your having facilitated. Um, so let me just mention that and, and with, with a, a deep sense of gratitude for that. But as you shared, I, I heard you all talking about what happened and the difficulty, the necessary conflict, as one of you put it, the, the, the challenge even of, of, of looking that real history. I love how you mentioned, Stefan, the truth um, of, of said history in the face and then recognizing what it looks like to move forward. And I want to just read 
one excerpt. We could read a ton of them, um, but to contextualize uh, one thought and then a question that I want to throw back out to the group. Um, this is early on in the book under a section called Deconstructing Race. Uh, Tisby says it took decades for patterns of unfree labor to harden into a form of slavery that treated human beings as chattel and dictated a person's station in life based on skin color. And he goes on to, to further explicate the role of Christianity even in that process. But I, as I read that and read the entire book, I thought about the time it took to literally construct racism, to make racism, which then for me says, well, it's going to then take time to unmake, <laughs> to undo, to relearn and unlearn. And, and as we, Philippians 2, talks about work out our soul salvation, part of that I see as our work is then doing such unlearning, doing such remaking, doing such reconstructing, um, and doing so, as Tisby Bard from Dr. King's language, with a fierce urgency of now. So not being complacent so much with the fact that it will take time, but that right now there's a fierce sense of urgency for all of us. So with that, as a bit of a backdrop, um, where do you go from here? Where 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 do we, we go from here? And in a moment, we'll have some others join us to talk more uh, specifically about some local opportunities in that regard. But just as you reflect on your time with the book and your groups, um, just what's your sense about where you go from here? And that's open to, to whoever wants to share for, for a few minutes on that question. I'll, uh, I'll jump in. I'm, I'm not sure uh, this is going to be really a, a popular uh, response to the question, uh, important question. Um, so I, I, I think as you highlight, Paul, um, the book talks about racism, right? Kind of like structural institutional forms of racism, right? Which I separate from racial prejudice, right? And so if we're thinking about how do we deconstruct um, racism, right? These systems of advantages and disadvantages that are actually based on race, then if, if we're talking like purely from that, that perspective, humbly, in my opinion, then uh, service and outreach is necessary. When we're talking about service and outreach for marginalized populations, that's necessary, but it's insufficient to actually create systemic change. So I think now we have to start talking about um, how does like reading Tisby's book or how does unlearning these truths, how does it translate into who we vote for, right? And who we endorse and what, and what reforms that we actually wanna actually push forward in terms of agenda. So now it becomes it becomes political. It becomes thinking about avenues and means of uh, redistribution of wealth and resources and, and access. And so how do we talk about equity and, and supporting those policies? And so it becomes a, a little bit more uh, removed from a service outreach piece, which is, again, it's necessary. But when we're talking about large change that actually impacts large groups of people, then we have to think about it from a more systemic perspective, which, again, um, service and outreach is necessary. It, but it's 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 treating a symptom. It's, it's actually ministering to those who who are kind of victim to a broken system. But it doesn't do anything to actually address the system within itself. And so, as I mentioned a little bit in our group, uh, you know what? We didn't even have consensus of our understanding of what racism is, right? And that's extremely important because there's important implications for that, right? Uh, and, and I'll stop there. So I, I would say that my short answer would be that we have to think about it more on a systemic level in terms of policies and reforms and thinking about how to use that to inform who we endorse, who, who we vote for uh, locally, um, regionally, nationally, and, and the organizations that we, we tend to support. And so I think it's about how do we do that, which I know is also times it's somewhat controversial in terms of, well, is that the role of the church? Should we be involved in those things? 
and I have thoughts about that as well, but I, I won't share those now. But thank you for that question. Could I join in with uh, um, uh, a brother and friend's wonderful um, comments? Uh, I think uh, Brother Joseph really puts a, a fine point on something that 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 has been um, concerning to me for a while. I think that sometimes we think that being political as a church, um, that we're, 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 we are finding ourselves automatically in partisanship, right? It's partisan for us to think about, you know, racism and race and, and racist idea. I mean, you know, the, the impact that um, anti-Black and anti-Brown racism has had on, on, on communities and that quote unquote, you're being liberal. I think that that's a really wrong-headed way of thinking about things. I think that what we are attempting to do is to think morally about our, to think about our moral imperatives in the world. So to think about outreach, as Brother Joseph has pointed out, is important, but inadequate in the sense that what we are attempting to do is think about how we are morally accountable to one another. And if that means thinking seriously about what policy does to change things, I think that that also has its piece. Um, everything is not necessarily partisan. It's not necessarily about liberal and conservative. Some things are moral imperatives. Uh, was the, the question that I would end with in my discussion here is that was was uh, Dr. King being morally? I mean, um, um, just simply partisan, or was he? Uh, did he feel called and compelled by a particular kind of moral accountability? And did he believe that the church in that way was political? And I think that he did believe that. Um, and I think that we need to keep that in our minds as we are marching forward and we're thinking about what color of compromise can do as a book, both for this church and for the community as a whole. I mean, I'll add, um, <clears throat> I agree wholeheartedly with what uh, Joseph and Stefan have mentioned. Um, and I will just say that at, at a fundamental level, I think there has to be um, more conversations like these within our families. Um, I think one of the most powerful um, moments I had, at least one of the groups, um, St. Care's group, um, was when a, when a white guy had just said that, you know, he, his, his parents were, were people he was targeting to have conversations with them about. He's raising his kids who are biracial. Um, to have proper context with respect to what the world they're going to grow up in. So I think fundamentally, you know, I, I really feel strongly that, um, you know, we have, we have um, people within our lives, people in our families, the next generation that we really got to pour into, educate, um, help them become more aware of the forms of systemic racism. Um, and and it, it goes deep. I mean, it, it, there are laws <laughs> written yeah, hundreds of years ago to this day that exist. Um, that that we just aren't we have blind spots to um, that we don't know about and we know we don't know the impact that they have on our communities and so forth. So we really gotta we gotta drop education on an educational front, but on a systemic front, we really have to understand the things that are holding us back and restricting our for uh, movement um, to end and 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 really dismantle racism. Yeah, I just want to add to what um, all three of these guys have said, and that's I feel like you know, the verse of Christ's love compels us. Um, and I think that compels us in two directions here. I think in what Joseph was saying about um, in systemic racism, it compels us to 
write to senators to vote um, towards the end of um, inequity. And um, it compels us to look outside of a few small issues to look to a lot of larger issues that underlie, um, you know, uh, why uh, incarceration rates are the way they are in, in why education is um, inequitable. And, um, but it also, um, requires us to have hard conversations with the people we love. And I think I, I mentioned that in my, um, you know, to not be afraid of, of the, the conversations that you can have because standing up for right and being intentional um, aren't always gonna make you very frequently are gonna make you unpopular. Um, but what matters more is, um, is to his glory alone. And so those are the places that we have to shed off um, our reputation and what we think of ourselves as important and to, to know that what God's asking and calling us to do might be uncomfortable. Um, and it might even separate us from people. Um, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, it, in, in fact, it's the opposite that to do what he's called us to do is what is right more than what people expect or think of us. Um, and that is hard, but it's also how we can move forward. Um, in, in both of those places, so. I can't help but think of um, the book of James in the first chapter, it talks about how <clears throat> the, the person who listens to the word of God and then doesn't do what it says is like the person who looks in the mirror and then walks away as if they never even saw anything. And so, that, you know, we read a, a book like Tisby's and we encounter perhaps for the first time or the 30th time truth in, in a new way um, I think to all of what you just shared, it, there's a, a, a compelling now responsibility, if you will, a moral imperative, as you mentioned, Stefan, to definitely engage those spaces, whether it's education. This is what I'm so incredibly grateful for, how each of you and, and, and uh, many of those who call Victory Home, whether it's education or business or finance or nonprofit space, you're, you're serving uh, in ways that both address the individual needs, but to Joseph's point earlier, are also looking at the, the more systemic needs. And certainly um, uh, Jesus's behavior, I think of him going in the temple and turning them over, uh, or his behavior and even speaking to the woman at the well, like he was crossing some serious structural lines and uh, overturning some things that, that maybe were outside of uh, sort of the partisan bounds, if you will. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful and appreciative for even uh, the the um, uh, the th that imperative to see God not being as Joseph put excluded even from the political realm and what that looks like, which does remind me of Joshua. And I'll stop talking after this. I think it's Joshua. Uh, the chapter is escaping me now, but where Joshua encounters the man and uh, and he says, "Are you for us or are you you against us?" And he says, "I'm with neither." <laughs> Right. So even even as we engage this space, Christ ought to be inserted, certainly in every political sphere, recognizing, though, that that any party isn't going to capture Jesus fully, though there is something to be spoken into that space for all of our biblical consciences to be um, to reckon with, if you will. But um, any other any other thoughts that that maybe to add to what you've already shared or build upon what you've shared uh, related to to where we go from here? And in a couple of minutes, we'll bring some other folks on to help extend that conversation a bit. Complicity is not an option. <laughs> Complicity yeah, is not, not an option no, it is not. at this point. Not. Joshua 5, Joshua 5, 13 and 14, I think is where it's at. 
I think for me, like my main, where do I go from here things are to be willing to challenge what I already know or what I think I know. So the unlearning phase, I think for me is going to be just as important as learning the new parts, but what are the damaging truths or, you know, places that I need to consciously be unlearning. Um, and then the other piece is just knowing that it's not like a, a checkbox process. You can't say, Oh, I read that book. I'm going to read this one next. And then, you know, who knows what else? I, I think it's really about committing to that lifestyle of being open to um, being used by God as a tool for that reconciliation. And um, I think one other point that we talked about in our group that I hadn't touched on, but it's important to remember what was already done, you know, like that reconciliation work was completed when Jesus died on the cross. So I think for us to just work to have that be our current reality, as opposed to just a hope that we cling to, um, I think is, is what I have to hold on to, to, to keep going and to, I guess, just commit to it, not knowing when it'll, um, when these big important strides will happen, but just to be willing to, to hang on as long as it takes. Yeah. That's so good. So my daughter has been reciting to us Matthew 6 uh, at any point during the day, sometimes at night, the Lord's Prayer. And, and I know y'all have heard me say this a ton in terms of that part that says, Lord, let your will in heaven be done. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and what I enjoy about hearing you all talk uh, and share is that we do get, in fact, to participate in that process. Um, we do get to partner with the perfect God as imperfect as we are to see his will done on earth. And that it could be like with Nehemiah and his team on the wall. It could be just what's right in front of us, right? Our neighbors, to Kara's point earlier, family members, friends who are in our sphere of influence, whom we can challenge with the word of God in conversation. It could be in our industry where there are structures that privilege a few and marginalize many. It could be uh, in, in uh, whatever spaces we find ourselves in. It could be we're in election season now where we say, God, inform my vote. When I'm thinking about racial justice, what biblically do, do you have to say about that? And, and how might I not elect a perfect person? Because there isn't any perfect person to, to do the work that's needed in government. But who and how might I be informed by your word as it relates to this matter, God? permeate all of that. And I love uh, the opportunity to, to not, as Mark said, to, be, uh, to not have complicity even be an option, but that we get to participate well. And there are a few more folks, even beyond those who are, um, you guys who are in this conversation. And, and even then, as we bring on uh, Mary and Mia uh, and Shelby and Angel, um, I know there are even more in our local church community, certainly the Big C Church um, who um, are, are bearing God's image as best they can. But I wanted to ask them to join us because here locally in Charlottesville, they have been um, uh, uh, serving in ways that I wanted to emphasize and highlight today. Um, and particularly as it relates to how others of you who might be viewing and, and kind of uh, engaging this conversation over the, the, the internet, um, how you might be able to Engage Now, I will say, and, and Joseph highlighted this point really well earlier, so I'm not going to repeat what he said because it was clear enough. I'll add to in saying when, when Victory Church, and I'll speak specifically to us, began in January of 2019, um, <clears throat> it, 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 it was more than 
a community service group getting together, right? It was more than a book club getting together. In fact, we waited a year before we did our first sort of extra biblical text together. Second Corinthians 5 and 18 that we led this conversation with spoke primarily about reconciliation to Jesus Christ, him getting our hearts right and turned over to him. And from that place, uh, us being reconciled to one another, though recognizing that such issues here in the earth could be stumbling blocks to get into Jesus Christ and certainly stumbling blocks to each other and that we all can participate in justice. We can pursue justice. There are ways we can serve and express our faith in Christ. Imagine that um, by pursuing justice locally. And so uh, Mary and, and, and Shelby, Angel and Mia are gonna just share some ways that they are engaged um, and it's not a, hey, look at them, look at us, because Lord knows there's nothing about that as much as it is. We get the privilege and the opportunity wherever we are to serve well um, and to take some next steps. Certainly there are many after a reading of a book like Tisby's. Uh, and so I'm going to kick it to Mary to talk a little bit about uh, what she's engaged in. And, and, and as they all share, I hope they also share ways that you too can engage um, and by engage, I mean, really invest your, your, your mind and your soul, your spirit into what God's uh, kingdom mindset is as it relates to these areas. So Mary, um, I'll kick it to you to introduce yourself and share a little bit more about what could be next in our community. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And thanks everyone for joining this call. I'm Mary Coleman. I'm the executive director at City of Promise. And our organization serves a specific footprint in Charlottesville, the 10th and Page, West Haven Public Housing and Star Hill neighborhoods in Charlottesville. And our mission is to end generational poverty through academic support to children and adult empowerment uh, for their parents. And um, I think the first important thing to point out, which has been highlighted a little bit already, is that everybody already has a mission field. Like you don't owe anything to City of Promise. God already has you serving somewhere and he wants you to be faithful where you are. And I think about this as important, especially for women who may be uh, in the child rearing stage uh, and dads too. Uh, I was a full-time homemaker for 22 years and then I worked in the private school space. So, you know, even though racial reconcil reconciliation and poverty alleviation have been in my mind for decades, it's only been in recent years that I've been serving in the poverty space, but everything I did up until that point was preparation for now. And so I just wanna encourage people to uh, realize that when we're faithful and, li and little, God broadens our reach and enables us to touch people in new ways. So to always just be satisfied in the field that you are and to be faithful in that field. I think the second point I want to make is that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. You know, he became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, according to the message version of the Bible. And um, I encourage everyone to become familiar with the issues in your own city. It's so easy to get caught up in what's happening in the great white world and in Minneapolis and uh, you know, wherever else there may be some controversy, but there's plenty to learn and know about Charlottesville's racial history um, and becoming familiar with those issues will stir in you the passion and the area of service that God may have for you. Um, for example, in Charlottesville, the median uh, income is $72,000 a year, but 25% of the people in Charlottesville live below the poverty line. So that's one in four people that you encounter in Charlottesville who do not shop or eat on the downtown mall because they can't afford it. 
right? And so that's just one example of just sort of becoming familiar with the issues that plague a city because then you can understand better why organizations like City of Promise and Abundant Life and others exist because we're really trying to um, right the wrongs that uh, have been planted in the city. And then finally, in terms of what you can do, the two things that came to my mind are mentors and mites, Uh, not the bug, not the insect mite, (laughs) but small portions of money. And on the mentor side, you know, I really want to challenge academia and an intellectual city like Charlottesville, because everybody wants to work with the talented 10th, and nobody wants to work with the kids on the bottom. And we have a really hard time getting mentors and volunteers to want to serve our community. And these children and these parents need Black mentors. They need Black role models. They have, many of them uh, are sort of in their situation because there was trauma in their life. They lost a parent to murder or cancer. They've never had a woman sort of take them by the hand and show them how to reach their goals. They never had a dad to um, challenge them about going to college or to you know, shoot baskets with them. And so you know, it's easy for even black people in our privilege and in our comfort to only wanna work with the kids who are talented like us and not wanna work with the kids who don't have as much going for them uh, externally, but internally they have just as much potential. So we need mentors and uh, particularly black men. Uh, don't wanna be down on black men, you all are amazing. Um, but that's my challenge uh, to this community. And then also on the money side, people are uh, low income persons because they don't have enough money. And you know, it'd be easy for me to skirt around this issue, but as an organization, one of the things we try to do is really provide a supplement to people's income to help meet their needs. So for example, we uh, provide lift rides for people to go to work and to go to the doctor. You know, it costs $8 to go, you know, half a mile in Charlottesville. Well, that $8 will mean a lot if you're willing to donate that and if God has so inspired you to do so. I think another thing that we address is just buying food for kids, a pizza, some McDonald's. You know, we're talking about six, $10, but that's a lot for a food insecure child who hadn't had a dinner um, or who hasn't had breakfast or whatever it is or whatever snacks we provide. So those are really small ways that God can really use his people in, um, to really have an impact on an organization like ours because it does take money to relieve low-income people of their suffering. And um, you know, while we're in the process of helping children graduate from high school, um, they need to eat, they need to go places, they need to go on a college visit and um, paying attention to those needs and supplying some funding for those needs would be really enormous. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. And I hope um, we're dropping something in the chat box. It may already be there. I can't see it actually on my screen in terms of how people can connect I'm assuming it's there, but thank thank you, Mary. Well, thank you so much, um, Pastor Paul and others on this call for inviting me to be a part. This is such, uh, I, I get the privilege of calling a lot of you church family, but I think often I just wanna sometimes plant a flag in the ground and just say how thankful I am that there are so many folks in the Charlottesville community who are um, part of our church family who get to go out and then um, be the gospel deployed. So I just appreciate, just want to take a second to appreciate that. Mm-hmm. My name is Shelby Gibson. I work at the University of Virginia in the Dean of Students office. I work in a couple different capacities, but one part of my job is working with our student success team. 
And um, kind of to Mary's point, when we, when we talk about student success, I think a lot of folks think about UVA as a place um, with a lot of students who come from incredible economic privilege, and that is the case. That's certainly the case. Um, a large majority of our students um, come from households that can afford to pay their college entirely without any financial assistance, and that's just the reality of it. Um, but the flip side of that is the work that our team focuses on in supporting first-generation, low-income students, military-affiliated students, and veterans. It's really a broad swath of folks, and so my work focuses in the areas um, of food insecurity and access to emergency financial resources. Again, the flip side of that coin of having the majority of our students being very economically privileged is that our low-income students are find being at UVA, getting access to resources can be really, really challenging because the framework is not set up to serve them. Um, and so part of the work that I do is uh, co-leading the food insecurity resource group within our office. Um, I understand that talking about the broader picture of justice, food justice is a big part of that. You can look at all of the different data nationally and seeing that um, communities of color, especially black students in college, are experiencing this in a way more disruptive way than other groups of folks. There are a lot of different studies out that, um, that have guided our work, particularly from the Hope Lab and, and different other nonprofit groups. I won't get too into the data since this isn't necessarily an academic presentation, um, but I will say that um, we're starting to see from the data that we've done at UVA specifically, that this is something that's very disruptive and that it's happening at UVA. When I have this conversation with a lot of folks the assumption is because so many of our students, like I said, um, don't have this problem, that none of our students have this problem, which is not the case. And so what we have tried to do in the Food Insecurity Resource Group is partner with resources not only in the community, but other good work that's being done at UVA to serve our students well. One of the organizations that we partner with is the UVA Community Food Pantry. It's actually a student-run initiative um, that's supported by donations of food and donations of money. Um, and so I, I shared the link with our wonderful and talented Ashley to hopefully share with folks if that's something you're interested in supporting. Um, and really just the biggest thing I think that I have learned being in this space is um, really comes from Proverbs 3 where it talks about do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in, with your, within your power to act. Um, as a, as a white person, I have really tried to dive into and learn a lot about privilege and not only how um, it works within our country at a systemic level, like Joseph was talking about earlier, we really have to go beyond a charitable response and move towards a systems response, um, but how my identity shows up in the spaces that I get to serve in. And so I think it's easy in a lot of ways to say, oh, if I just go in and engage in this work, I can ignore how it impacts me as a person or how me as a person impacts being part of this work. Um, and so I've just really tried to be thoughtful about that. Part of that is participating in, in groups like this Color of Compromise group and other discussions that we get to have as a church family um, and learning from others, incredible folks in the community who do work um, like Mary and, and Mia and Angel. And so I'm just really excited to be part of this and thank you for inviting me. And I'll just leave everyone um, with this quote that I've had tacked to my computer in my office for the last couple of years um, and engaging in this work at UVA. Do not be daunted by the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it.
Amen. Thanks, Shelby. I, th I think Angel. Yes. Um, so first of all, just thank you, Paul, again, for inviting me to this space. Um, and just thank you to everyone who has shared. And um, it's just been such a blessing to hear everyone's experiences and takeaways. Um, and I just, I really feel like Holy Spirit is speaking in this moment this morning. So um, just praise God for that. Um, my name is Angel Firo. I work for Abundant Life Ministries. Um, our mission is to demonstrate God's love through holistic community development, particularly in the Prospect Avenue neighborhood. Um, so that does include uh, the adjoining streets of Orangedale Avenue, Bailey Road, Rock Creek, um, and then extending down Prospect. Um, so I do echo many of the things that Mary spoke to in terms of the need to minister to specific neighborhoods in Charlottesville, just based on um, our racial history. Um, I did want to also mention my husband Richard and I held um, an unofficial book group study on the color of compromise and uh, we were, um, it was a mixture of some of our um, friends from the neighborhood and then also some of our Victory family. And we were very um, challenged by the fact of looking at just the, the systemic systems of racism that have been in place for so many years. Um, and then looking at the time period now and what we're experiencing now and some of those same similarities that we are seeing. Um, I wanted to just specifically address some of the inequity issues that have been um, brought up in the conversation this morning. Um, I know that the pandemic has highlighted many things. Um, one of the things is the all virtual education um, that is happening right now in the city um, and how that is affecting particularly our black and brown communities. Um, a lot of families who are working and unable to be home to support their children in the way that they would want to with virtual instruction and what virtual instruction requires. Um, so we in particular have been uh, working with uh, many black and brown families to provide access to the virtual curriculum. Um, so right now there are about 22 children who are coming to Christ Episcopal Church. We're super grateful that they've offered us their space. Um, and I have several volunteers who are um, filling that role as a support uh, for children to be able to access a curriculum um, that in many ways, um, just offering this one choice to families has put a huge burden on these families. It's a huge stressor. And so we are trying our best to help alleviate that, that stressor. Uh, so I wanna invite folks, I want you to prayerfully consider to join us in these efforts um, to be a support to children. Um, what that looks like tangibly is coming to the church, we have a morning program from eight to 12 for our youngest of children. And I've seen uh, particularly that the virtual instruction is very difficult for our kindergarten through second graders. Um, if you imagine just having to sit in front of a computer screen for two hours as a little person every single day um, is extremely hard. And I know the burden that their families have of wanting to be present and, and do this work with them, but being unable. Um, so I would invite you to 
join us in those efforts. Um, it's 8 to 12, Monday through Thursday at Christ Episcopal Church. We also are offering tutoring for upper elementary and middle school students as well. And that's taking place at Buford Middle School. And that is Monday through Thursday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Um, I do know that uh, in asking people to join us in in-person work, there is some risk involved. So please prayerfully consider this um, and, and do what you are led to do by God. Um, but I do also want to mention, as Shelby mentioned, that um, the time is now to, to do what God is calling us to do. And if you have the privilege and you have um, things available to you that you can uh, redistribute that wealth to help others who are in the margins, please prayerfully consider doing that. Um, you can get more information at our website. It's charlottesvilleabundantlife.org. And if you click on Get Involved, that will take you to um, our volunteer links. Um, so thank you so much for, again, for the opportunity to share. Awesome, Angel. Thank you. Last but certainly not least, Mia Woods. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. My name is Mia Woods. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Boys and Girls Clubs of Central Virginia. Um, and I will just echo everything that Angel and Shelby and Mary said about learning and getting to know and become acquainted with and understanding deeply the needs of our community right here. Um, and just also share that I feel really blessed to be able to have the conversation about the color of compromise right before this. Um, and the opportunity to talk about how some of us are serving in the community and shed light on the needs that exist here and ask that our church lift all of these efforts up in prayer. So that's one really tangible way that you can begin to meditate on what's going on in our own community, but also that's a tangible way to get involved. It speaks to me a lot that Mary shared that um, at different stages in life, sometimes um, we are called in different spaces, um, but one of those ways is to add us all to your prayer list and add the children and the families and the students that we're serving um, to your daily thoughts um, and to your daily prayers and search for ways that God is telling you um, to serve them as well. Um, our clubs, uh, we have six clubs in our organization. Three of them are rural, so in Scottsville, Madison, and Orange, and three of them are here in Charlottesville, Albemarle. I know our church is not just Charlottesville, um, and so we have one club that's on Cherry Avenue, one that serves the Southwood um, community, and then one that normally functions out of the Jack Jewett Middle School. Um, in a normal time when the world is right side up, uh, we serve about 1200 kids each day. Um, due to COVID and spacing and everything, uh, we're currently only serving 250 kids per day in all six of those clubs. At our Cherry Avenue Club, we're seeing about 57 children a day because we are spacing ourselves in a way um, to make that safe um, and to make sure that we are practicing good um, health and safety practices. Um, it puts a strain on those who are serving kids. It puts a strain on families. It puts a strain on our kids. Um, and 
I appreciate the conversation for the about the color of compromise and kind of thinking outside of yourself um, and trying to educate yourself and realize what may be going on around you that you don't even recognize or know about. Um, it's really impactful that Mary shared that, you know, going to dinner on the downtown mall may be normal for some of us, but there's a large segment of our population, 25% of a large segment of our population, um, that that is not even a luxury that you dream about or think about. Um, and particularly during these times, um, how much has shifted um, for families that our organizations serve. Um, when you think about um, after school care, or what we've moved into right now is academic support centers. Um, so the club is open from, in some locations, 7.30 in the morning, but the Cherry Avenue location from 8.30 in the morning to 5.30 at night. Um, we are trying to make it accessible for um, those families who need us most to log on and do their academic work. Um, we are trying to make sure that you've got a stable internet connection, that you're surrounded <clears throat> by people who are creating an atmosphere for you that allows you to do that work. Um, but think about what that does um, for the entire community. And that's how I like to think of what the Boys and Girls Club does anyway. Not that it's just uh, youth development, but that it's community development. As a parent, to be able to go to work and know that your child is safe being fed into, um, being looked after, has positive role models in front of them and is enjoying their time. A lot of times we get bogged down by like the schoolwork, the this, the that, the logistics, but it's also supposed to be fun. We want our kids to enjoy life. Um, and one of the ways to beat back against everything that's going on these days is just joy um, and still trying to infuse that for our kids. I think it's hard for us to speak on that these days because there's so many layers to get to before you get to joy. Um, but we still are wanting to put that in front of our children and make it fun. We are distanced now. Uh, we've got kids stay six feet apart. Uh, we're asking our staff to stay distanced as well. So how do you make that fun and how do you make that enjoyable? Um, but also how do you make that how do we make this a community that works? Um, so workforce development and workforce infrastructure is also what we're in the business of, um, is making it possible for families to work, making it possible for families um, to provide for their kids. Um, and you have to know that your children are well taken care of. Um, the discrepancy between 1,200 kids a day and 250 lets you know that there are a lot of kids who are being left behind right now, lets you know that there are a lot of families who depended on us before um, that don't have us at their disposal now. We're seeing so many different things from our families right now. They're all over the place. Um, and I think we all have experienced that, whether it's from work or having your own children, but just keeping up with the changes that are happening, trying to make plans and those plans changing. Um, so organizations that have a foothold in our communities, um, like Abundant Life, like City of Promise, um, please reach out to those organizations who have already established um, relationships with the community and can kind of get a, a strong feeling about what those actual needs are. For Boys and Girls Club right now, um, we're not taking volunteers into our organization physically um, because we're trying to limit um, contact and make sure that we're keeping everything safe. But we are taking outdoor volunteers. So they're really fun, like outdoor programs that people can do. I know that our website is being listed right there. But if you're into running and there's a running club, if you'd like to 
um, you know, mentor a crew to learn how to ride a bike or something like that. Those are things that we are asking people to do outdoors right now. But the academic support is something that we're going to handle kind of as our staff and as one. But I also, it's a daunting task to address racial disparities and economic inequities. Um, and we know that our organizations are founded and here for that. But I also ask you guys, in addition to prayer, just think about kindness, joy, and fun too. Um, we are always willing to take um, care packages that have been created to provide a little fun in the day. We're supposed to be like healthy lifestyles, but you know, a hundred little candy bags that you put together are definitely welcomed. Um, encouraging notes in math, to say like, you've got this virtual learning is really hard, but like think about doing it. Um, I never want anyone to feel overwhelmed by the thought of um, feeding into their community. Um, and just like Mary said, at whatever point in life you're in, there are different ways that you can do that. Um, but I just encourage you to pray on it and think about it. Um, continue to expand your minds after this color of compromise um, reading or just um, discussion that we had today. And know that there are organizations out here that are welcoming of you, um, that will continue to do this work of serving our communities, um, and that would love to walk alongside you. I think what I'm hearing is that there is a lot of work, um, a lot of work to be done. Uh, and that work is, there's really no way around that work if we're going to be living out as, as those of us who follow Jesus Christ, this, uh, this, this vision, if you will, and, and broader purpose of being reconciled to God and to each other. If we're to be a people, as Michelle referenced in her quoting Micah 6 and 8, who love justice uh, or do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, there's no way around this work. Uh, and I'm not just referencing the work that you can, and I encourage you to partner with Mary and Shelby and Angel and Mia, but the work that there's no way around to truly be a reconciled folks are the, the, the work that was discussed on the front end the readings, the engagement, the, the interrogation of our individual and collective histories that hopefully produces, as Michelle talked about and Olivia mentioned, this repentance and lamenting such that when we engage and partner with these organizations that Victory is proud to call sisters and brothers in this community, that there's some understanding about even the systems that are producing the needs that we are serving, as Joseph mentioned before. And to that end, as I close and we close this moment, which we'll do with prayer, uh, you know, I, I teach uh, students at the university and, and, and at the graduate level when we're talking about sending them out into the schools to be school counselors. They all get the wide eyes when I start and all of us in our program area, we talk about systemic change. They're like, how do I do that? What does that look like? Um, and then, of course, we start to scaffold the process of what it looks like. But we recognize it can be daunting to, to think about both the individual level needs of the kids right now who just want to know that they're loved and that that these spaces are, are staffed to serve them well. And the, the systems over years that have produced this situation that is abhorrent. Um, that we are now having to band-aid to begin with. So I can gather, as, as I imagine all of those on the screen with me, um, the difficulty and stress of that challenge. And so I hope that this space and others beyond it will at least push us forward in understanding the ways that we can connect and to throw another low-hanging fruit way out for some of that more systemic work as a church that we just embarked upon is, uh, uh, is that of 
engaging, promoting justice through housing. There's a lot of conversation we could have about the history in Charlottesville of Vinegar Hill. If you want a phrase to Google, might be one to get a sense of how individuals and brothers and sisters in our community are in the predicaments they are in because of larger systems at play. Um, and so one small endeavor that Victory Church has embarked upon more systemically is that of purchasing residential properties to pursue justice through housing. What does that mean? It means that people can have a place to stay without commuting 30 miles outside of the city because there's nothing in the city to afford. And so when you give to Victory as an offering to Jesus Christ, you should know that some of that will go towards that effort. Or if you give directly to the Victorious Living Fund through PushPay, that is one more systemic way of engaging. But again, the work isn't just stroking the check and the work isn't just volunteering, but the work is, I pray, reflection, 2 Timothy 2 and 15 talks about studying the word of God to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth, understanding these as kingdom imperatives, gospel imperatives, recognizing too that even as we do so, Romans 12 and 1 says that we do so only as a reasonable response to his mercy. Uh, quoted more succinctly, it says, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable uh, which is only our reasonable service. So even as we discuss all the work, it's really just a reasonable service in response to an all-loving God who's given us this privilege to do, as Philippians 2 says in the Bible. I love the thread of justice that runs through it. Philippians 2 says, to prefer others over ourselves. And so what we've heard today are the many ways that we can do so locally and the many ways we can think more critically around our participation, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, in upholding a status quo that God, quite frankly, is not pleased with in the ways we can repent, meaning 180, turn from it and run in the other direction toward a space that does, in fact, bring heaven here to earth by way of racial justice. And so, God, I thank you for this time that we've spent to every face in this screen that I can see, to those I can't who are watching via Facebook. I pray that all of us together collectively would repent and lament and pursue justice, to do justice, to walk humbly and to love mercy. May the words mentioned on this screen today resonate for days, weeks, months to come, and may it translate into the kind of work that will produce not just community service, but that will produce a turning of our hearts toward you to see the least of these, to see those who you love more than anything not be loved by systems here on earth, to see them empowered in the ways you want them empowered. And if you're watching and you're saying, gosh, if this is a part of walking in Jesus, I want to walk with Jesus. You can accept Jesus into your heart right now. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised Jesus from the dead. He'll come into your life today. And yes, this is what we've discussed in extension of who we are as bearers of God's image on the earth. Perfect? Absolutely not. There's always more, will forever be more till the day we leave this earth to be done. Oh, but what an opportunity to partner with the perfect God to make him recognizable. And so if you've made that decision, I encourage you to reach out to us for next steps in that walk um, or any of the spaces that you heard today to, to put into practice some of the tenets of our faith walk. Love y'all.
everybody on the screen, appreciate you. Thank you for sharing. Those watching, thank you for engaging. Um, stay connected in this season of COVID. Stay encouraged. Um, as I referenced earlier, 1 Kings 19 talked about Elijah feeling like he was the only one, the only one left. And Jesus said, no, I've got several thousand who haven't bowed down. There are many in this space wanting to do the right thing and honor God and worship him in the ways you've heard discussed. Find your people, find your group, and let's do so together as a family um, in Jesus' name. Love y'all. Thanks for hanging with us just a little bit longer than the 29 minutes. We'll be back to that next week. But I believe God was honored today. And Angel, I agree. The Holy Spirit's been with us as he spoke through each and every one of you today. So, fam, let's live in victory and have a wonderful, wonderful day and week. Bless you.